Alrighty. I'm pretty sure I said at the beginning of every episode now. Welcome. This is We Met in a Tavern, a podcast all about uh, Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing, character building, and why we love playing the characters that we do. My name is Rob Vader, and I'm trying to get in the habit of introducing myself at the beginning of this because I don't do it very often. Uh, but I am a uh, I'm an avid player, uh, sometimes DM, and uh, and now the the lovely host of this wonderful podcast. Uh, we met in a tavern. I'm gonna be annoying and say uh, since we are now jumping into episode seven, and uh, I can see the analytics of some people who are listening. To remember to like and subscribe wherever you are listening. Just it helps. Uh, we kind of have a sporadic schedule. We're not we're not like every week or anything like that. So if you subscribe, you'll know when the new episodes drop. I'm very excited for my guest today, who I'm gonna I'm gonna let you introduce yourself in just a second. Is is across the pond still a thing we say? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> we, the, the world is small, but it isn't that small. <laughs> Please, uh, who who are you, the player? Who are we? Who are we talking to today? <laughs> Hi, folks. My name is Luke Bihovsky. I am a, a Dungeons Dragons player. I am a keeper of arcane lore for Call of Cthulhu and a budding storyteller for Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, fantastic! I mean, just just name dropping three very good <laughs> RPGs yes, right there. It's like, yeah, I like. Uh, I've found, and you know, we'll talk about it through the character. But Call of Cthulhu is the game that kind of got its hooks into me as like a, oh, I don't want to play this. I want to run this. I've dabbled in at least the intro to Call of Cthulhu, and I really like the way it mm. teaches you to be the lore keeper. Is you go through like essentially a choose your own adventure. To like learn all the yeah. pieces, and uh, it was great. It's an amazing learning tool. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alone against the flames is a really handy tool, and it just it teaches you these kind of big rule changes. Like no, in Call of Cthulhu, the lower you roll, the better the result. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I, I got I got into it because I listened to another podcast called The Eldritch Hour, and that I was like, man, this game seems like a lot of fun. And then I looked it up, and it was. It was like, oh, these rules seem really easy to learn, which was another kind of big, important hook for me. It's like I'd previously looked at the Dresden Files RPG because I love, love the Dresden Files books. Mm-hmm. Um, but those rules are a nightmare. <laughs> and it, it's just like, I, I, I remember, I, remember I, I got a copy of the sort of rule book. I went through it. I made notes. I presented these notes to a DM friend and I went like, do you have, does, this makes sense. He looks at this one. I have no idea what any of this means. I was like, yeah, I don't either. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that's a big thing with uh, role-playing games in general. The barrier for entry is usually the, yes. the, most, uh, the most harrowing. And that's, I think that's why 5th edition has started to bring people back into D&D. <laughs> Absolutely. And people like, you know, people talk about 5th edition. Um, people don't talk about 4th edition. Uh, <laughs> I started off playing 3.5, and I vividly remember making my 3.5 character. I'm like, why did this take two hours? <laughs> why did this process take so long? And people go, oh, but 5th edition is like a video game. And it's like, yeah, people like video games. Yep. Like, <laughs> it's, it's easier. No, no, and I th- there's something nice about 5th edition where quite literally you could sit down at a table and roll up characters and start playing almost immediately. Um, yes. And that's how it happened. That's how I stumbled into this lovely game. So, yeah, it's the very best way of doing it. Um, so uh, we're here at the tavern. Uh, Luke, thanks for joining me. Um, what are we drinking? I am drinking a aggressively British brand, uh, Copperberg. That's not a very British name on reflection. Copperberg strawberry and lime. Ooh. And hold on. Oh yeah. 
That was quicker than I expected. Good lord. That went right in my ear. <laughs> that has been in my fridge for a while. <laughs> because of the distance, I kind of just went and got whatever I could as a cider, and I'm not a huge sure. cider fan, so I got a ginger-infused one from uh, Citizen Cider. Nice. But I'm excited. <laughs> cheers. Yeah, cheers. So am I your first international guest? You are. So we have had... Exciting. We have had two people from different time zones. Um, one was a friend of mine who lives in Oklahoma, and then the other was um, uh, Charles, who reached out to us in, in just about the same way. And he was uh, he was out in Texas, so that was it was really fun. Very but cool. to to be to now have international on our on our list, I'm very excited. <laughs> it is. It's it's a cool thing. To, it's a cool thing. Cool kind of a milestone to tick off. Exactly. And somehow we managed to do it in the first the first uh, run of the podcast. At least if uh, if if season two comes, this will be. <laughs> we still got to kick off international beforehand. Um, so uh, we are in a tavern. I like to do. I like to handle a lot of things kind of the same way you would. This is small talk. You're we're just kind of getting to know each other. Um, considering role playing games, uh, focusing on D and D where you can, but it's really an open discussion. Um, what are some of your favorite, uh, characters to play? And this could be classes, races, um, pretty much anything in the gamut that, um, that you think, uh, is, uh, is really fun to play. Uh, you know, as we've talked about, I, I'm a huge fan of rogues. Rogues are, I think for me initially, because to this day, I still don't have the best grasp of the technicalities and the kind of actual like mechanics. And for me, it's just it's flavor first. <laughs> and we talk about we talk about how well built they actually are comes second or even third. No, so I love rogues just because they have that they have that sheer kind of style element. They have the kind of I think the subclasses for rogues are really good fun. Uh, for races, I am an avid human defender. I think humans in a fantasy world, and D&D explores this a bit in their lore, I think humans in any fantasy world where you have things like dragons and elves and dwarves, creatures that live hundreds of years and by all accounts are stronger, faster, more intelligent, more developed, the fact that humans still exist and have spread everywhere is... It's like, okay, what is it? So clearly, clearly, there is just something in humans that's unique and it's special. And in my head, I always have, well, humans breed like rabbits, and that's in the law. It's like humans don't live very long, so they have to reproduce constantly. And it's, um, humans just appear to just be hardy. And when you look at it from scientific perspective in our world, humans are actually pretty difficult to kill. And I've always, had, I've always just loved the imagery of, like, a willowy elf nailing a human with an arrow right to the chest. He's like, all right, got him. And the human just looking down and just going, crack. And just like, <laughs> get him back. Like, oh my God. <laughs> just get him back on with it. So I'm a big defender of humans because I think to explore that role to be this... Because I imagine in a fantasy world like the Forgotten Realms, humans are probably really quite odd to non-human races. Um... And uh, my big, the biggest soft spot I have is for tieflings or tieflings. <laughs> I don't know. But it's, that is just an aesthetic thing. I think they're fun to look at. I think they look cool. It's really, and everyone hates them, which I think, depending on your DM, can be a real factor in gameplay or a con. It's hard being the sexiest race in Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> you know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. 
And they have that. And this whole thing of like a lot of them are despised, they're forced to work in the underground. I think it's fun to kind of have a character who will either like embrace that image and have fun with that image or to have to do the other thing and have a character who aggressively wants to avoid falling into that. And, you know, as the games evolved and we as a society have talked more and more about fantastical racism and uh, it's things like people want to play orcs, so we can't make orcs a all evil species because um, people want to play orcs, people want to play half orcs. And I think tieflings have now fallen into this niche of being the ones that get like rocks thrown at them and stuff like that, and you know the ones that get spat on in the street and that kind of thing. And there's a there's a big appeal in in liking the underdog, and there's a big appeal in the character who has a lot to go up against and has a lot to prove and it's just like no people don't like or even better to embrace and to have that feeling of yeah people don't like me and i don't particularly like them either that's very liberating i think no of course i mean there's there's a lot of uh role-playing potential and i'd, I'd touch on both what you said about humans but also uh playing at essentially any uh any role playing where you start out as a potentially like underdog or disenfranchised character, um, it, regardless of if we're using the uh, the older rules um, for monstrous race classes or we're using like the new stuff with Tasha's, you can still have that kind of stuff in your story where your character yeah. decides whether or not they're going to embrace being the outcast or fight it at every turn, which is always super interesting. And it's one of the great stories is man versus man and man versus society. It's just, you're right, you say that there's so much to kind of go with that if you want that to be a factor of your game. Oh, 100%. And I mean, I, I'll, I've said it on this podcast before, I'll say it again, uh, especially when you get into uh, truly trying to role play certain things with your characters. That's why we have session zeros. That's why you can kind of figure out both with your DM if it's something that they want to run and then with uh, the rest of your party if it's, you know, obviously if you're... If you're maybe going into some areas that make other people uncomfortable, you know, great to talk about ahead of time. But if you're at the right table and it's it's a comfortable thing, it's a very fun thing to explore. I'm glad that you said what you said about humans because I get made fun of for being vanilla a lot because I make a lot of no. human characters. <laughs> humans are fun. Humans in fantasy world, I think, are weird and they're hardy and they're these. I think it's... You have, if you look at it, it's like in the law, in the, the D&D law, it straight up says, like, humans are nomads and humans are wanderers and they kind of spread everywhere. And they say one of the weird things about humans is they all look different and they all, they all have different decorations and they, everyone wears their hair differently and wears jewellery and tattoos. Other races don't do that. And so humans, because they've spread so far and because they've absorbed so many cultures... It's it's interesting. I think if you you that you take a fantastical world, it's like you know humans are, we are not the majority. We're not the default. No, exactly. And you, no. it's it's a fun thing to play. And then I think the nice thing about the human is when you play the human, you everything you add to the character is the characteristic. Yeah. The the race isn't the characteristic, which is yeah, which is fun. How long have you been playing D and D and role playing games? And then, who was like, who was the first character that you played? And uh, if not the same, who is your favorite? <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, well, so D and D for me has been on and off. I could not give you the exact year, but I was in secondary school in the UK, so high school for the US, and it was quite early into my sort of secondary school 
uh, time. I want to say like year nine. I have no idea what the American equivalent that is, but I want to say it was about 13, 14 is just off the top of my head. So yeah, freshman I year started playing. <laughs> yeah. So I started playing with a group of friends and we ran 3.5 very on and off. It was very sort of casual. Um, but that was my first Dungeons Dragons experience. I just remember him kind of, I remember watching them play and uh, being like, this seems like fun. And, immediately being drawn to making a character who to my teenage mind was the coolest character <laughs> who ever existed ever he was a um he was a sorcerer called illusio larem which is latin for hello which is where i got it from love it and he was a yes yeah, so we started off as a sorcerer he because I have a thing for giving all my characters long coats, and that's never gone away. <laughs> uh, so he wore like this kind of long red kind of leather coat. Um, he had a real penchant for like ice magic. I remember we did this casino heist story, and uh, towards the end of that little casino heist, our character got our character our party got battered by a monk. Um, so we were out on this balcony and the balcony came crashing down to the ground and we're all kind of picking ourselves up and the monk just leaps off and lands and then before we know it this thing is just ping-ponging between all of us just dealing out massive damage and I'm like what the hell is this I didn't know this was an option because <laughs> uh, I love I have such a soft spot for martial arts movies I always have if you have, if you give me a video game and there's an op, there's like a proper way to build an unarmed character, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> um, and so in the end, we got out of it because I kind of persuaded. Because since then, uh, I've, you know, starting from that, I've always done like a face character. And sorcerers are good for faces anyway because they're all charisma builds. Um, so he was all like, you know, no, we're stealing this for a good reason. I can't remember why we were stealing it. Because uh, <laughs> yeah, the story it was, asked just, you to steal it, that's why. <laughs> it wasn't even the story. I explicitly asked the DM if we could do a casino heist. <laughs> because I, I love heist narratives. I was like, can you do this? And he was like, yeah. So he designed like this whole thing with like traps and stuff. He put a lot of work now that I kind of reflect on it. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we, we had this monk. And then I afterwards I was chatting and I was like man I really want to do a monk now and he was like you could multi-class but my brain just was like I don't want to do that I just I'm just going to convert to being full monk because we already had a party that was very full of uh, uh, made magic users and I think I, I do think there are different personality types are attracted to different styles because all of my friends studied like science and maths and all of them were mages and I don't think that's a coincidence <laughs> I don't. I don't uh, think so either. Considering uh, my my fiance is an engineer and his friend is an engineer, and they love the magic stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just the drive for numbers. I love numbers, tracking numbers. <laughs> so I converted to sort of full monk, and again had a lot of fun with that. I distinctly remember doing a flying elbow drop onto like a stone golem or something. Because I was like, I'm just gonna give him wrestling moves because I can. So yeah, that was my very first. Uh, then for my favourite, so we skip ahead years. We skip ahead to I'm out of university. I've come back home. I've found a local Dungeons and Dragons club, and I fall in with um, a guy called Addison. He is a dungeon master, very very good. Like I consider him to be exceptional. He runs a podcast called The Pod of Many Things, where he talks about all this kind of stuff, and um, talk to him on there. So he was doing this story. It's long kind of epic campaign of going after this like half dragon sorceress 
and eventually taking down this god. Um, and he introduced my character, and right, I was like, okay, well, is the kind of thing I want to play because I just finished reading uh, *The Lies of Locke Lamora* by Scott Lynch, which uh, is a sort of Renaissance era. I call it urban fantasy because it's based in a city, but it's not like werewolves in New York. About a con artist um, called Locke Lamora just running scams, and I was like, that's such a cool concept. Because again, my with my love of rogues, I've always loved con artists and hustlers and the kind of characters who can just they're always moving stuff behind the scenes and if you if you feel like you're winning it's because they it's because you're three moves behind that sort of thing <laughs> and i was like right i want to do this what in dungeon dragons gives me the ability to do this and so i had i was looking up rogues and i saw mastermind and i'm a big sherlock holmes fan and one of the D writers described it as if you want to be professor moriarty be a mastermind and i was like that's such a cool thing. And it has that great ability of being able to like, just give people advantage, like just freely. And it's like, that's mad. And it comes with just lots of other flavor stuff. And like the one, there's so much, and I can't remember all of it, but the one that sticks in my mind is at the highest level for mastermind. No one can tell if you're lying. Yep. It, it, it works against magic. It works against compulsion. No one can see through your eyes. And it's like, that's excellent. So Mordai I kind of came together in my head and I picked Tiefling because they're cool and they look cool and they're fun. And they've got like, and they've got like a hellish rebuke and that's just a nice yep. little uh, toy to have in the back pocket. Um, and they're all charisma, so they're all smooth talkers. So it helps with the rogue anyway. And I can't remember where the concept exactly came from, but I just, I was like, okay, well, I want him to be someone who's fallen from grace a little bit. I was like, okay, well, uh, all right, there's a noble background here. Okay, so what if, what if he was, because if you're a rogue, you've got to have ended up on the street somehow. You've got to have learned how to do this stuff somehow. And it's not like a, bar, not like a barbarian or a, or a fighter where there are training camps. It's like, no, this was, this was an unfortunate time in your life where you've, I had to learn to scrape by. And I was like, okay, well, what if, what if, what if, what if he was this son of a really noble house and he fell into addiction and manipulation and he fell into powerlessness and then he just lost everything. His name is like scratched out of the books. It's removed from like statues and stuff and he's just left. And I told Addison this and he pulled Mordai into the story and he's like, okay, well, you've been working with this half-dragon sorceress. You've been helping her out. She's kind of picked you up from the bottom and has brought you back into nobility and high society. And we introduced my character there. And Mordai's arc, I felt, because um, I don't like to plan my characters too much. I, I write and I'm very big on characters and I'm very big on, you know, let your characters kind of reveal themselves. And if they contradict themselves, that's fine. We contradict ourselves all the time and we contradict our deepest values all the time. And you will find eventually the edges start to smooth out. And so I didn't go into Mordai with a full arc in mind, but he went from, you know, being very much, no, I'm after revenge. I've been humiliated. She's played with me. She got in my head. I want to get done with that. And like, I want to get my name back. I want to get more money. It went from being that to kind of going through and going, okay, well, I want to redeem myself. I want to reconnect with my family. I want to be more than, you know, I was at the bottom of my addiction. I don't want to go back to that place. 
And that came through having a really strong party with really strong characters to interact with and just DM being good enough to give my character, to give people lots of opportunity to roleplay. So Mordai holds, not just because I think he was a lovely character and he was lovely to roleplay, but also because he's the character that got me back into tabletop RPGs. And he's the character I ran with for months. And you just can't help but get attached. Like, I remember our group broke up briefly because our kind of block ended. Um, and I went off and played something else and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't very good. And then I remember we all, Addison kind of talked to some people and we got back. We got back together for the last sort of push. And I was like, it was like slipping on an old jumper. I was like, oh, uh-huh. it, feels good. it feels good to be back in this character. No, I understand that. Uh, and it's, it's funny, uh, more often than not, the... Um the the favorites are always the ones we've we've spent the most time in and it, i mean it yeah. makes sense it goes hand in hand we we spend the most time there because we enjoyed them the most if if we weren't enjoying mm-hmm. that character we likely would have switched it up but yeah absolutely no and i and i like what you said too about um cuz we talk we talk on the podcast occasionally about uh half baked characters having characters that you know aren't aren't done cooking haven't fully figured themselves out and it is nice, especially when you have a table that's full of good role players, because you you are then given permission to kind of like find your character at the table a little bit more and mm. use the influences that the other players uh, throw back at you as actual stepping points. Yeah, and you have these opportunities in like quiet moments and you, you don't always have to have the answers because they don't know anything about your character and you may not know anything about your character, but if you have this concept that you like as you said people will just throw things to you like the 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 big reveal point we had with mordai was there was a total uh divination cleric i can't remember what the divination school is wizards divination Mm. wizard um and he we did like a brief arc where we went to go rescue his family and there was just this moment where mordai was just chatting to him and just said so you like you go to visit your parents all the time he goes oh yeah man like all the time. I was like, that seems nice. And everyone at the table immediately goes, roll insight. And it was just, <laughs> just to see like what I wasn't saying. And I was like, roll deception and nail it. got like an 18. It's like, you guys don't know anything. <laughs> I, I do also love rolling. Um, I think I finally got to a point where I like upped my, I upped my stats so I can now, I now have the same deception and persuasion roll. So like, no one at the yes. table knows which way I'm going with things anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's good fun. Yep. So we we're, we're we're in the tavern. We're getting we're getting a bit more into the into the meat of things here. So um, speaking of your character that you, that you're bringing to the table today, when when they walk in, uh, when they walk into this tavern, what what do people see? Just kind of that initial introduction. Uh, how do they hold themselves? Well, like when I was designing Mordai, I was very big into professional wrestling, and that's absolutely had. And the glitz and glam of that absolutely had an influence. I always, I always described Mordai as a bit like a fantasy David Bowie. <laughs> and so, so uh, the door swings open, and, and Mordai kind of steps in. He's tall. He's lean. His skin is this brick red. He's got these curling goat horns that come out from the side of his head, uh, like jet black. He's got long black hair that falls down to kind of nape his neck, kind of slightly curled in that romance book cover kind of way. (laughs) It's got like 
jewels braided into it. He's got like gold in his ears. He's got, I think at one point I gave him like a chain that rang between his horns. And he's had like, he's had like a piercing that ran from his nose to his ear and stuff like that and just gold chains. Um, I'm fairly sure he wore a fishnet vest. Uh, he used to wear like the kind of long coats, tight trousers, dark boots. And it was just, uh, I, he would, you'd, he'd have to walk with confidence or else people would have already started to throw stuff at him. And like, he walks, he's just got this kind of swagger. He has these black, like coal black eyes. There's no kind of iris. It's just black. He's got this big, bright kind of devil smile, the sharp teeth and just kind of swaggering in. He draws attention, but he knows he's drawing attention. That's why all the bright colors. That's why all the kind of gaudiness. And a lot of it is a front, but also he's just, he's just stylish. And he just, he likes to dress extravagantly, uh, almost kind of, fe- I guess you'd call it kind of feminine. Um, yeah, lots of glitz, lots of gold. I love it. And I don't know, there's, there's something to say about the, the rogue who makes sure people notice them. Um, you know, hiding, yes. hiding in um, plain sight I, is a thing. <laughs> I've always held... Armor descriptions in D&D are a suggestion. They just exist for stats. Uh, I like it like, you know how in video games you can get like a transmog system so you can wear better armor, but it's like, this looks like garbage. And so in D&D, it's the same thing. I'm I'm wearing official rogue leather armor. Here are the stats. I don't look like that, though. (laughs) No, I I understand completely. And I uh, I am such a, like fashion person in video games is such a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Transmog systems, I feel like all games should have them. <laughs> they should. They should. They take, they're introducing one into... We're getting off topic immediately, but they're introducing one into Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, Eventually. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Neo 2's got one, which I'm playing now and I love. Um, our party was quite sort of fashion heavy. I vividly remember we were doing like an... Et- we were going to do a story where we had to go to this party, like quite high. I think it was the one Mordai's family was throwing. And the girls at our table were very much, okay, well, we need to get dresses and stuff sorted. And there was so much, like, description of it. By the end of it, the DM was just sat there, sort of hands. And we get to the actual gates. We get to the doors. And obviously, this is Mordai's party, so he's kind of gone, look, they can have their weapons. They're my friends. I give them, you know, carte blanche. And they're having this debate of, like, Okay, well, what if you hold the weapons and you put them in the bag of holding and the DM just goes, please, for the love of God, just go inside. (laughs) (laughs) It's said about eight times, the weapons are all allowed, it's fine. That's fantastic. No, we're very... You can't save the world if you don't look cute. Exactly. What's What's, what's so hard to understand about this? (laughs) Oh, I love it. And I, and I can and probably will get on that tangent again. Um, <laughs> so Morday walks into the, into the tavern. Um, I'm, I've been getting a vibe, so I feel like I know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but what are they doing? How are they, how are they passing the time? He kind of strolls in, and if you could see his eyes moving, you'd see them kind of scanning and just picking up and looking, reading the room and kind of going, right, okay, who's a threat? Who's a mark? Who's, uh, who looks like they'd be fun company? Who's here to lose money? Um, his big vice is gambling uh, and kind of recreationals. And so he would just, that's what he'd be looking for. He'd walk past, and if there are pe- but if there are people playing dice or cards, he's tracking that, like, as he walks. Um, I think his first move would be 
kind of go up to the bar, get a glass of wine, kind of settle in, read the room for a little bit. Then as soon as he's spotted, right, who's my mark? He's right up to them, shaking hands, big smile. Oh, I've never played this game before, that sort of thing. And, you know, oh, he's a ringer. Right now. Am I doing it right? Like, yeah, sits right down. Oh, can I bet the earring? It'd just be things, it would, it's just stuff like that. Fan, fantastic. No, we've had we've had a couple. I, I like I like asking that question primarily because it's um, these are kind of the like uh, assuming it's the the first the first game like you know oh your your character walked into the tavern what are they doing how they but it's like that first you know interaction that other players would see your character doing and like yeah I mean it's it's Strider in Lord of the Rings <laughs> it's sitting there in the corner with your hood up smoking a pipe it's like ooh intriguing. Yeah, I, I, I can't. Uh, my, my friend Ellen, who was the last guest on this, like she, she will jump out of the computer and kill me. Uh, I love Strider. I think Strider's fantastic. I think Aragorn's a terrible character. Um, <laughs> it's just such a thing. But, <laughs> but Strider, I, I also based I, like my first character is pretty much Strider meets Flynn Rider from Tangled. So it's uh, <laughs> a good mix. Great, they're 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 a fun combination. But um, they are a fun combination. Oh. Getting getting back to getting back to Mordai. Um, uh, so I like to describe this one as kind of the elevator pitch, but it's also the like walking up to a table at a convention if uh, you kind of needed to tell people who your character was. But in like a sen- sentence or two, just the quick, um, uh, who is this character? Con artist, prodigal son. I think that's as succinct as I can get it. <laughs> his, you know, his deal is I, you know, I, I like to. I like to convince people to give me their money. You know, I don't want to steal it. I want to convince them that it's a really good idea that they give me it. <laughs> it's like there's, I'm fairly sure in Master, in like, I didn't pick the right background for this, but I'm fairly sure there's like a way in D&D to run what is known in the real world as the Spanish prisoner scam because it's existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is when you contact someone, a stranger, and you receive a letter that's saying, I'm being held in a Spanish prison, I need money to escape, and I have access to these accounts. That scam has existed forever, and it makes complete sense that it would exist in a fantasy world. You know, as long as there have been people earning money, there have been people who don't want to work for it. And Mordo is just, I'm too good-looking and too <laughs> smart to try and do the grunt work that everyone else does. I think because as soon as he kind of, he lost the title, he lost the sort of, the family name and the assets and he was right down the bottom he's like okay well i can either start working from nothing and i'm a tiefling so that's not going to help or i could just do what i know i'm good at and take risks i mean why not <laughs> why not especially he, at that point he had nothing to lose yeah and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it starts working out, you're obviously just going to keep doing it. <laughs> so. Yeah, and that was that was that was something towards the end of his arc. Which if there's one thing I could change about our D and D story. If there's one thing, at the very end, when we'd killed the god who was seeking to destroy things to bring balance to the universe, we received blessings from the god that had created them. And through that battle with this evil god who was out there to destroy the big bad who'd been behind everything the whole time. Mordai spent the entire fight crippled because he had become the image of himself at his lowest when he was addicted. Ooh. Like, there was a whole thing, was, there were in, it was like a room that was lined with mirrors, and the mirrors would have an effect of, like, if you rolled well, it could give you a bonus. Like, 
I checked my DM. He was like, yeah, if you rolled well, you were going to have Mordai's mum come out as like a Hexblade warlock and fight with you guys. Oh, but he didn't roll well, so Mordai got crippled by his addiction. It was like that, or it was going to be his little sister who was going to be, again, like a sorceress. Um, so he said he got crippled by his addiction. So we spent the whole time like shaking, skinny, haggard, sort of just craving. And, and he, we get out of this fight. He's back to his normal, beautiful self, and he's furious. And this god is dishing out rewards and is sort of saying, like, yeah, I'll give you, you know, the things you guys have been working towards. And Mordai was, Mordai, I couldn't, and Mordai couldn't understand why everyone else wasn't angry. It's like, the only reason any of this happened is because this guy created this evil god and got us to fix the problem. Why aren't you all trying to kill him? <laughs> and it was, so, so he was handing out these boons and Mordai took his and it made him like the treasurer. It made him the treasurer of the kingdom it not only made him that, but it made it so it, he had always been the treasurer of this <laughs> kingdom. And if I could change one thing about his arc, because this was the point, this, I knew everything about the character at this point. If I could change one thing, he would have ripped that up. Oh. Because he would have known. Number one, he wouldn't have taken it because he hates this guy. And number two, he would have known, if you give me everything, I'm just going to spiral again. He's one of these... You meet these people in real life, and I think they make interesting characters. They need conflict to function. If they aren't constantly working on something or against something, they just fall to pieces. And Mordo was like that. He needed the work, and he needed... To keep, he needed to constantly be hungry and to constantly have something to work towards. If you give him everything, he's just going to burn it. Um, but in the end, he got... In the end, I'm happy to say, he got... He, he didn't. He got a happy ending. He married someone for, like, a social convenience, I think. He was never, like, a romance kind of guy. He'd put the charms on when he had to, but he was not interested in relationships. Um, and, but he got married, and they had a child, and in the end, he ended up helping raise one of the party members' daughters uh, just as a bit of a, a terrible choice for a mentor, if you <laughs> ask him. But, you know, you can't learn everything from druids, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I am a fan of the of a the uh, tearing up a boon concept. Uh, yeah. yeah, there is something to say to go full role, role play in those moments and be like, I don't I don't want this. But also, I think there's just something very uh, adventure spirit about being the personality type of like I need to constantly be working for something. Like, it makes sense for uh, why why you're an adventurer like. Why are you out here doing dangerous things for very little pay? There has to be something wrong with you. Exactly. There has to be, there has to be some dysfunction. <laughs> and you see this in real life. You see this in the real world. The really, really successful people are a little bit insane. <laughs> they have to be. Or else they wouldn't be that successful. Yep. And like, it, it comes out in weird ways. You know, you watch interviews. It's just stuff like, oh, they don't really talk like most people. And it's just, it's, and it's just things, you know, you see that a lot in real life, I think. And it makes sense for an adventurer. Another example of that that I really like to go back to Neo is, is one of my favorite sort of RPGs. I love it. Um, and it, the whole plot of the first one is this guy's trying to resurrect Oda Nobunaga, who was one of the biggest warlords in Japanese history, who unified Japan. And he wants to resurrect him so he can use him to like conquer the world. He resurrects him. You fight him. He then beats you and just sort of surrenders and goes, no, I'm done. 
He just he's just like I've been brought. He essentially describes being brought back to life as undignified. He's like, he's like I've died. My story's done. I don't want to do anymore. And I'm like, that is the best, the best twist on resurrection I've ever seen. Like to be brought back to life, to be given all the opportunity to have all of your power back and more, and just to have been like, no thanks. I'm done. I've told my story. I mean, and I, I love that. It's it's fantastic, and uh, I if if you're not a fan, I apologize for the comparison. But I mean, that is uh, that is the arc in uh, season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, sure. When they sure, they sure. bring her back, and it's just like I didn't want this. I I did yeah. the hero thing. And I'm I'm so sympathetic to that. Like you see, it, I'm a big Superman fan. You mm-hmm. see it a lot in like Superman stories, like. I saw one recently where Tom Welling's Superman, he gave up his powers. And people are like, oh, Superman would never do that. I'm like, why not? Like, hasn't, hasn't he done enough? Hasn't he sort of given up enough? Don't you, at some point, just to get to hang up the cape and live a normal life? You had it with, like, Captain America at the end of uh, Endgame. Yep. It's like, it's like, but he's done it. Like, he's given his life to this. Why not let him get old? And, like, I don't know. I'm very sympathetic to that. And the other... There's a real-life example. In ancient Rome, there was the Emperor Diocletian who saved the empire from complete and total collapse, and he retired. He left sort of four emperors in charge. Terrible move. He retired to go uh, bake cabbages. Like, he retired to go grow cabbages on his farm in the middle of nowhere. The empire was in a turmoil again. They came to him, and they sort of said, Diocletian, look, we want to put you back in charge. We can't handle this. And he said, no. And they sort of said, you know, why? And I think the quote is something like, my friend, if you could see the beauty of the cabbages that I've grown, you would want for nothing else in the world. And it's like, that's wonderful. Like, you've done it. And you've done the work and you get to enjoy it. So, but with Mordai, it's the opposite. With Mordai, it's just, I I need that hit. I need, or I'm going to fall back down that pit. No, of of course. And I mean, honestly, that's... uh... That is a character arc in itself to have matured to the point that you know you need it. Yeah. Like, you know, to, to turn away the, uh, the reward because you're like, nope, I know myself and I, yeah. I'm going to need this to, to move forward. Yeah, turning away what you think you wanted for what you actually need. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the really difficult adult decision we sadly have to make every single day. <laughs> I see. At some point, on uh, with people listening to this, they're going to they're going to think that D and D never has any math or dice rolling because of the way that all my guests talk about characters and role play. Um, I do promise there is there is dice. There there are mechanics, there are but famously, but this is this is one of the things that I love talking about. It's um, the entire concept came from uh, post game discussions when everyone's kind of wrapping up and you just talk about things that didn't come out. And uh, I find the I find it to be very interesting because it does influence every decision you make while you're playing the game. Um, it's it's why you healed the wizard instead of the cleric. It's why you, um, for a mastermind rogue, it's why you gave somebody advantage versus over somebody else. Um, I will never get over how great the help action as a bonus action is. It's, it's so, so amazing. It's so good. <laughs> getting, uh, getting back to our list here. Um, so... We've had the elevator pitch. We know what they're doing when they get into the tavern. Um, uh, what, what's the world that Mordai lives in, and um, how do they fit in or not? Mordai is, is a city boy. Um, 
obviously in the the world of the Forgotten Realms and in any kind of Dungeon Dragon setting, you're going to have these really, really built up metropolises, you know, where people have survived for hundreds and thousands of years. But between that, you're going to have wild lands. And there are going to be some people out there who prefer that and have always preferred that. But Mordai is firmly, you know, to, to pull from Moriarty, he likes to be the spider sat motionless in the center of the web. You know, he likes to feel connected. You stick him in the middle of a forest and he has no idea what he's doing or, or where to go or what isn't, isn't poisonous. He's like completely <laughs> useless. He needs to, for his skills to work, he needs to be around people. He's, um, his world is, he's, he's adaptable. He can move through all kind of social spheres, but he's going to be most comfortable in kind of high society. So what he was raised with, his family were very sort of well off, very powerful, very influential. Kind of sketchy, but that comes with the territory. <laughs> um, and so he's comfortable there. He loves all, he loves like the beautiful food and the beautiful wine and the clothes and the people and the conversation. And he likes having rich marks to work with. And I think a lot. And I think on the surface level, he fits in. On the surface level, he's a bit of an oddity because he dresses like a lunatic, and he. He's a tiefling and he's got the sort of long hair and the nails and like, you know, the, the weapons strapped to his body and stuff like that. So he's, he's an oddity and he's the kind of thing you'd, in, kind of person you'd invite to your party just for some people to talk about. Um, and so on the surface he fits in because he smiles and he's able to hold conversation. You can talk about basically anything. He's got this great knowledge of just topics in the back of his head, like any good con artist. But underneath it, he's just bored. He finds most people really dull and he's just, he's constantly kind of making schemes and plans. And I think if you were to, I think if he was going to really try and pick where and where he feels the very most comfortable, it's going to be with the party that he found. That's going to be his internal kind of perfect world. And that would surprise him. But he, the world he kind of moves in is that of kind of high society and shadows and sort of whispers behind masks and that kind of thing. That's what he's really good at. But it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily his happy place. There's uh, being good at being part of that society and feeling like that's where you belong are, are different things. And uh, I, in D&D, I find it more and more the theme, like the found family concept comes up. And I think it's both because very quickly, if you have a good table, your table kind of becomes a new little found family, uh, and then your characters then tend to uh, ho hold on to that as well. <laughs> Absolutely, that is such a special part of Dungeons and Dragons, and it's it's part of the experience that you don't get anywhere else. I don't think there's any other medium that generates that type of feeling than the same way tabletop RPGs do. And I don't think it. I, I would say maybe Call of Cthulhu is not quite the same because of its themes. Um, and it doesn't have that room for sort of, it does in theory, but that room for having cosy chit-chats around a fire underneath a blanket of stars doesn't really happen in that game. But even in Vampire the Masquerade, which is a very dark game, there is room to kind of make these real connections. And like in D&D, I think one of the biggest appeals with any character making in any tabletop RPG is the ability to express different parts of yourself and connect with other people, also connecting with other parts of themselves. So you get to connect with, you know, you, your mask, this mask, um, with other people at the table, and your characters, another mask, gets connected with them. And you're right, and you come round, and 
you know, you, you get a bunch of people around for anything for a few hours, eventually they'll start liking each other. And you add into that, like, this shared... Humans have always bonded over stories and storytelling. We've done that for as long as we've been able to talk. Um, and D&D is just an extension of this with dice. We're not forgetting there is maths involved <laughs> in this game. Now, you started throwing out masks. Uh, I'll have to... We'll have to have another chat someday uh, with my fiancés around uh, so we can just talk about Jungian psychology for Jungian hours. Psychology, yeah. It's such a, <laughs> such a thing. It's, that's a whole... A whole other thing to get into. <laughs> uh, and then I wanted to quickly jab with uh, you. You mentioned um, not having a moment for being under a blanket of stars in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, in Call of Cthulhu, that mm. might be terrifying. The stars are yes. ancient celestial bodies that could be like slowly causing you to go mad. So, <laughs> yeah, like there is in, in one of the scenarios I like running called Amidst the Ancient Trees, you're in a forest searching for this girl who's gone missing. And there are moments where you are doing exactly that. You're sat underneath the stars and then something terrible happens. It's just, <laughs> quite have the same bonding element trying to convince my friends before like we we're talking about playing call of Cthulhu and being like so i know that your initial feeling is if i tell you there's anything terrible or a monster that you want to yeah. fight it that is not this game <laughs> i was like no to you... give to give you an example <laughs> the last i i just finished running a short block for my local rpg group um in the last session we had a total party kill it was not my intention. I did not go out of my way to wipe these people out. Um, it started off when one of them fired a flamethrower indoors. Because we've all... We've seen flamethrowers in movies, and we think, that's how flamethrowers work. They have a range of, like, six feet. No, they have a range of 72 feet. Yep. They're, they're really, <laughs> really powerful. Yep. Um, so that's how it started. <laughs> and then to give you an idea of how squishy people are in Call of Cthulhu, one of the guys stood up against this thing that was just demolishing them, he took one attack and died instantly. Yep. There are no death saves. And the, the kind of quick maths version to explain it is, in Call of Cthulhu, your average investigator is going to have 11 HP. A, a normal gun can do 1d6 damage and can fire three times. And, then, and that's it. Yep. So just be aware. Yep. If you want... If you're party want to do Call of Cthulhu but want to actually be able to put up their dukes a bit and put up a fight, there is a rule supplement. I'm not being paid by Chaosium to plug this. I just think <laughs> it's cool. Chaosium, if you want to pay me, uh, it's called Pulp Cthulhu. Where, so it's all about that. It's adding in that kind of action element. It also has the best rule in any tabletop RPG. Hmm. Which is if your character dies, you can roll luck and if you succeed, you are brought back to life, but you have to provide a suitably ridiculous reason for why you survived. That is phenomenal. So it might be phenomenal. your character is thrown off a cliff and crashes into rocks and drowns, and you come back to life, you know, a month later your character reappears, it's like, ah, oh, Johnson, we thought you were dead. He goes, ah, yes, pelicans nursed me back to health, and it's just... <laughs> and it's just... I think that's the best rule. I think every game should have that rule. Um, no, I think I heavily recommend Call of Cthulhu, and it is a tough sell. And it's a tough sell because it's a play-to-lose game. And you also have in Call of Cthulhu, you know, in D&D you might play um, a half-elf cleric, you might play an orc barbarian. Uh, in Call of Cthulhu you might play an accountant called Tim. And, it's, <laughs> and that's quite a tough sell. Uh, and... 
but the way you, the way I sell it is like, look, it's a dirt easy game to run. If you like horror, if you like atmosphere, if you like investigation, this is the game. Its its combat system is messy in the same way that like Silent Hill 2's combat system is messy <laughs> because you're not meant to enjoy the combat. Uh, it's like I I don't know how automatic weapons work in Call of Cthulhu, and I refuse to learn. <laughs> I I watched a video on it, and they straight up said. We had to contact the developers of the game because the rules are not clear on this point. <laughs> and they're not. And I don't understand how it works. Um, so it is a tough sell. But I, I think it's absolutely worth your investment. And also, it's, it's different to D&D, I think, in that every kind of scenario has a tension arc. And so you can play it much more, I think, I think, more than Dungeons & Dragons. It suits a Monster of the Week style more rather than a long, ongoing, interconnected campaign. There are ways to do that, but because you're playing real people in the real world, you come into barriers like, don't you have a job? Like, yep. That sort of thing, we don't get in D&D. So I think, like, look, just you know, pick a couple of nights, do a Call of Cthulhu one-shot. The Haunting is free and is excellent, and it's just a really good intro to how to play, the main themes, um, and have fun with that. And you only, you only need... 2d10s you don't really need any other dice see yeah, big big plug for call of cthulhu no it was a fantastic plug for call of cthulhu and over like overall i just love role-playing games in general so i will always uh yeah. whether we're talking about video games tabletop doesn't matter i like role-playing games the the hardest sell for call of cthulhu for me was the lack of dice uh i am a dice goblin i have so much <laughs> dice in this house and then i was like what do you mean nice. i only need these dice it's all D100. It's all D100 and your damage dice, and that's it. And um, for me, as a, as a guy running it, I love that. Because Cthulhu is on basic role-playing, so as long as they roll under their stat, they've passed. There's extreme and hard successes, but they're really easy to understand. It's all theatre of the mind, so I don't have to keep track of... And admittedly, D&D has an optional rule for theatre of the mind, so I don't have to keep track of, like, grid space and stuff. Yeah. Um... So for me, it was it was it's easy to learn. I like Lovecraft. I love Lovecraft's kind of stories. I'm a big mystery guy. Mysteries are my thing. I read tons of mystery novels, and to me, the Lovecraftian mythos is the ultimate mystery which you don't want to solve. Um, and it was being able to tell these cool because I I'm a horror fan who doesn't watch many horror movies, <laughs> but I read I read books and I listen to horror podcasts and watch horror shows, <laughs> but. And tabletop RPGs, because I love the themes that horror lets us explore. You can explore really intense and personal themes through horror, because there are a lot of things in life that scare us, and it's difficult to explore scary themes in a non-scary way. And I think Cthulhu can be a really interesting way to explore what scares people, and also to just maybe even enjoy having a squishy character because it, it adds to that tension. You know that you're not going to be able to like shrug off damage you take or the sanity you lose and it means you have to kind of proceed carefully. Which is a very important lesson to learn especially in a role-playing game. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, it is. I, I, have, I have two follow-up questions um, that will... Uh, will steer us back to Mordai. I'm going to start with, uh, because we're talking about Call of Cthulhu, let's just say we, uh, let's just say um, 
you had to transmog Mordai into a Call of Cthulhu game. How, how do you think that would go for him? <laughs> yeah, well, wait, as in keep the same race stats and everything? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm mostly, I'm, oh, I'm thinking like dead. his personality just... <laughs> oh, his personality and stuff. Well, I think, well, he's a smart guy and like invest, but intelligence works against you in Call of Cthulhu in a thematic way and also in an actual gameplay mechanics way. So in Call of Cthulhu, you can take health damage and sanity damage. Yep. If you take five or more sanity damage, you can suffer from something called a bout of madness. You need to roll against your intelligence. This is a roll you want to fail, because failing that intelligence roll means you are denying what you've seen. You're pushing it into a little box in the back of your brain. You're explaining it away. But passing it means you are fully aware of what it is that you're experiencing and the horrifying consequences. So I think Mordai would struggle there because he's a smart dude. I think he'd be really good at getting out of actually investigating stuff. He would have the core, he'd have the hook, and the hook could be something like, oh, this rare book's gone missing from the library, and he'd be like, that sounds great, I don't care. And he'd be, he would be a nightmare for me to run, is uh, to give the kind of full story. That's fantastic. Um... The, the other question, uh, going going back into Morda and his world that he lives in, um, uh, just because of how tieflings work, uh, I'm curious, is is Morda's whole family tieflings, or is he, like, you know, one of the bloodline that started to show the, um, uh, like, the tiefling trait? Because it, no, it depends family, on your... Okay. Yeah, no, whole family's tieflings. He has, he has mum and dad, and he has a younger sister who he's very, very soft on. Very, very soft with his sister. Um, he's always... His mum and his dad know about all of his terrible failures, <laughs> and, but he's always done his absolute best to protect his sister from knowing any of it. And it's always been going to look after her the most, and Addison did such a good job of... It's such a tough ask for DMs to be like, now role-play this eight-year-old girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Like, that's such a tough ask. Addison's a big dude with like a beard. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, this is a grown ass man. It's just, uh, so it was, yeah, but he, he did really well and he managed to sort of generate this really kind of sweet character who the party all immediately fell in love with. And, um, yeah, whole family, whole family, all, all of horns and great tasting clothes. No, of course. Um, uh, yeah, I asked, I asked mainly because like every, every, um, Every table kind of plays it differently, and it's the same thing with like Asimar. Uh, is like sometimes, sometimes everyone's Asimar. Sometimes it's like just you. You're like the chosen granddaughter who just appeared, yes. and uh, yeah. and um, I could see that also being if they were a uh, a well-to-do family, and then suddenly they had a tiefling child. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a whole. That's not a not a terrible idea at all. But that's a whole other spin on the character. Oh, sure. And that's almost. That's almost a darker kind of timeline for a already dark timeline. It's like, <laughs> no, I didn't fall from grace. I got kicked out. Yep. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Then everyone asked the question what, like, great granddad was doing with, uh, you know, any infernal ties with because Asmodeus. now the bloodline's yeah. there. But <laughs> this is this kind of, uh, before we jump into, like, character creation as more of a general, um, I like to ask, uh, like, for any any story time, any things that are particularly great, but it's usually the nat 20s and nat 1s, um, our successes and our failures in Dungeons & Dragons are the thing people talk about uh continuously so uh do you have any any great uh nat 20s or nat 1 stories that you want to share one of the kind of earliest ones that i remember was um 
when Mordai's first session, he had, because we could all get a unique item, so Mordai had a deck of cards, and they were a gift from the Traveller, and they could do various things, like they could act as like walkie-talkies, and they could be used to track locations, and if he shuffled them, they'd kind of be drawn back. Um, and so, in his first, it's one of his early sessions, he's just joined the party, he's helping them, because they're trying to get to this vault, where this half-dragon sorceress has been trying to get to, and he knows the way to unlock it and lock it. So he gets there and he's sort of sliding things round to unlock it and it unlocks and this hand just boom, right onto his face and it's just lightning and he gets brought right down and she just kind of breezes out, you know, half scales and long dress and everything. And he's kind of dragging himself up and she, she can't, like, you know, she's, the party are all kind of frozen as she's kind of walking out. And as he's kind of close to the ground, he just takes one of the cards and just throws and I nailed the roll. I got like, yeah, I think it was his nat 20. And it manages to just like slip into the folds of her dress. And it's like, great, now we know where she's going. And like, we had that track. And so we were kind of following it. And then like two sessions later, I think it was something like, we found the remains of the card like pinned to a wall with like a nice try or something. Oh. Like that. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. So I like that one. I liked that one because I thought it was just, um, it's a little bit about his character. Because it's like, I'm always going to try and get that one up on people. It's just stylish, being able to do that nice kind of card flick and get it in. And it's like, it gives them a prop. And it's these little props that I think help develop characters and immediately tell you something about them. Oh, of course. I, I so think that's great. It was just a, just a smaller one. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, we are, we're not in any way, shape, or form leaving Mordai, but we are definitely getting into what I like, just kind of more general character creation questions, so feel free to, uh, feel free to relate them to Mordai or any other characters that you've played in any of the other games, but this is just kind of more about, uh, um, the generalities of character creation and why, why you like doing it. So, um, I think the, the first and most important question, because everyone has a different process, uh, how do you come up with your characters? I'm terrible at answering this question because um, I, I write. I haven't written anything, to my shame, I haven't written anything in a while, but I, I, I'm really quite set on, I want to write novels, and I've written novels just kind of for myself previously. For me, characters start off, they kind of, I, I start with a block, I call it like the block of marble, and you get your sort of big block of marble, and there can be a, and in your head, like when a sculptor visits it, you know, there's still the image of the thing in the marble. But you're starting from there, you're starting from a very general concept. And I think in the end, if you reel it back even more, it's just, what do I think is cool? It's like, for my, one of my novel characters, Maynorth, she's an occult investigator living in London. And I was like, okay, well, I love Harry Dresden. Harry Dresden's cool, he's an occult detective. Um, I love John Constantine. He's really cool. He's an occult investigator slash terrible human being. Um, <laughs> how do I do my own thing? Well, and it's like, okay, well, occult investigators all kind of tend to look the same. You know, white guys, brown hair, stubble, long coat. How do I do the polar opposite of that? And I just, I had this image of May come into my mind. I was like, oh, okay, I can work with this. And I describe the process as pulling the thread. So you have this general idea. So to go back to Mordai as a concept we have, okay, well, he's... He's a con artist with a noble bloodline. Why the hell is he a con artist if he's got a noble bloodline? Okay, well, maybe he was ousted for something. Okay, why was he ousted? Because he lost all his money to addiction. What's he addicted to? Gambling. Keep pulling the threads. And eventually, you do end up with 
more and more kind of information and more and more stuff you can start putting together. You don't have to keep all of it. Um, there's stuff you can drop and there's stuff you can add in. But that's where I like to go from. I, I think people get worried. And I think, I think the more you get into the arts and into creating art, you realize how rarely this actually happens. You do hear about singer and songwriters just sitting down and suddenly the whole song is in their head. Suddenly the whole thing has just appeared fully formed in their head. And you get it with writers as well. Like, you know, they talk about authors sitting down and getting out the first draft in one sitting. But those are the exceptions. Art and any kind of creative work, it gets romanticized a lot, but it's a grind. Mm -hmm. And you need to put the work in. And for characters, that means giving yourself time to help develop a character and think, what do I like to see? And even why do I like those things? Because then you can kind of go, okay, well, I like this trope. Oh, but this is a related trope. And, and my other advice is like, don't be afraid to pull from tropes and cliches. The reason they are tropes and cliches is because we like them. And I'm a big fan of take popular cliche and, and wear it boldly and almost do it in a kind of very self-aware way. Like one of my earliest original characters is a fantasy swashbuckling hero called Petnak Shieldheart, which is the most generic hero name ever. But it kind of became a joke because it's like, yeah, that's a ridiculous name for a person to have, but he's a ridiculous person. And he's this unshamedly romantic, heroic, sort of masculine ideal of this kind of, you know, swashbuckling hero. And it's like, yeah, that's what he is. And, you know, that's been a cliche for so long that it's kind of become rare and I think this is a fun thing to play with and we should play with it so I, I guess my biggest the way I do it is I start with these general concepts and pull the threads and I see what gets revealed to me and then once you've got that you can kind of delve in a little bit deeper and let let yourself discover the character naturally if, if you're sat there and you're trying like it's all well and good to kind of go through these 50 questions about your character where it's like what's their favourite food what are they afraid of and that's fine if that's but I think those are only helpful if they inspire further thought. If you're just going through the questions and going, they're afraid of spiders, their favourite food is curry, that, <laughs> that may not be what inspires you with characters. That may not be what's going to generate the actual deep introspective stuff. If it is, grand. But you have to go on and ask the sort of the bigger questions and the deeper questions. And I find in D&D &D and in writing, the best way to do it is just start putting them on the page and start role-playing them and kind of see what comes out naturally and if you make a mistake and you do something out of character like I said earlier we do things that are contradictory to who we are all the time of course actually on, on that uh, I, I've been meaning to slowly add this in um, as one of the just more general questions but because because uh, I actually agree I really like finding um, you know kind of stumbling through after I've made like the initial idea of finding the character a little bit uh, do you do you prefer to start at lower levels? Um, everyone kind of has a different opinion of, of what the best starting level in uh, D and D is, but uh... I am an avid defender of start at level three. Level three. Uh, start <laughs> when you get your subclasses because that's when D and D gets interesting. I I've never done a high level campaign. I don't think I've even done a campaign where we went over level nine. Um, I think it's partly because it takes so goddamn long yep. to get to level 20 <laughs> by design. Um, I think also, like, I've read about people's experience of doing a like, level 20 campaigns. Like, it's actually a nightmare. Like, you can tell that this game wasn't designed to do this a long, for a long time. 
because you just got so much stuff to keep track of. Um, I think it, I, so I am an avid defender of, I like lower level stories because they give you less tools to work with so you have to be more creative. Um, and I think it's easier to generate threats. And it means when you're a low level party and you're going up against a dragon, that's a hell of a lot of fun. And there's so much more to discover and build with your character. I would, would I, I would love to do like a level 21 shot and be like the god of thieves or something like that. Like that would be really, that would be fun to do as a one shot. But I think the other thing comes from a character design perspective and a role play perspective. And you get a lot of things and I don't want to, I'm not saying this to trash anybody's backstory, but this is just an example. You get people who write these really, really in-depth backstories for their character and then start at level one. It's like, yeah, he was a general in the army for five years and then his, his right arm was taken off and was replaced by a war-forged arm and now he's off hunting this dragon. Uh, he's level two. Like, what do you mean he's level yeah. two? <laughs> um, so I think by starting at a low level, you have more room to build your character's story. You know, Mordai came in at low level because he'd been... He'd only been pulled up back to high society by this person they were after. And from there, he had room to go and build his skills. I can't agree more, honestly. <laughs> it is tough. A lot of people fall into the, the creating a, a pretty complex backstory for a low-level character. And it's just like, well, um, this pack of rats is going to kill you. So you probably yeah, didn't take people... on a griffin. But <laughs> Yeah. People want to play... People want to play cool characters, mm -hmm. and I completely understand. People want to come in with a cool character. But it's like, you can have a very, very cool character who doesn't have much backstory. Uh, but that's why I like level three. You've got enough in your toolbox to, to, to have a unique character and to, like, I, so, and like the, the subclass that you pick should have a reflection on your character's story. Like, if you are a, a Hexblade Warlock, why? If you are an arcade trickster rogue, it's like, okay, how did you end up using magic for this reason? If you're a mastermind rogue, what took you to do that? Mm -hmm. um, I think, and so I think your backstory should go up to, uh, it, yeah, if you want to do a low-level campaign, it should go up to, how did you end up with this being your niche? And, and why are you good at it? Definitely, definitely. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on since uh, to jump ahead a little bit, I, I really like your opinion on tropes and not avoiding them. I will rephrase my question because typically it's uh, what tropes did you pull from uh, or avoid and why? Are there tropes that you do like to pull from very specifically and are there tropes that just don't really do it for you? Um, I tend to not like brooding kind of dark heroes. They can be done really, really well. And a, a great example of a brooding dark hero, and the one everybody talks about, is Guts. <clears throat> Everyone loves Guts. And I think the trap a lot of people fall into is there has, to be, there has to be something else outside of the brooding, or else it doesn't mean anything. We're all humans, and all of us and characters and stories are built on conflict. There has to be some kind of conflict there. Um, the tropes I love, and it's so much easier for me to talk about tropes I love than tropes I don't. I love, um, I love gambler kind of characters. I love mastermind characters. So I love the characters who are always playing the chess game in their head. They're always three steps ahead. There's a great quote, I think, from Cyclops, where someone says, like, right, what's plan B? And he goes, like, right, we're moving on to plan two. It's like, don't mean plan B. It's like, that implies I only have, like, 26 backup plans. And it's just <laughs> stuff like that. It's like, that's cool. 
That's, that's objectively very, very cool. I've always loved the wisecracking kind of character. I feel like that's been beaten to death by Marvel. So now I have, that is what I now avoid at all costs. Because <laughs> that's a whole other topic to talk about. But it's like when everything, it's a problem if everything is funny. Yep. And there has to be a point where no one is laughing for stories to have like a real kind of impact. And Marvel has beaten the kind of quip, the constant quipping thing to death of me, and now I cannot stand it. <laughs> Someone pointed out this thing where it's like, Iron Man destroys your home, like, whoopsie! And it's like, oh my god. Uh, so, yeah, I love my kind of mastermind characters. I like kind of, I like gamblers. I think they, I think that's uh, maybe saying a bit more about myself than I intended to reveal on a, on a podcast about Dungeons & Dragons. Um... <laughs> I think there's just that kind of edge there uh, and there's that vulnerability and it's this idea of you've got everything but how long are you going to be and this is something in Mordai how long are you going to be content with having everything before you have that kind of thrill of risking all of it Um, big Sherlock Holmes fan there was some stuff I drew uh, for Mordai from Sherlock Holmes which is just the kind of intelligence and the, the boredom and that kind of fear of lethargy and motionlessness mm-hmm. i think that's a really good one um i like i don't know if this, has, this is a specific trope but i like characters with very quite material goals at least to begin with i think if your character is starting off with a um incredible ambition like i want to destroy all evil from the world that can be quite difficult to relate to but i think if your character i think this is why we like revenge stories because we can understand, you know, it's like, yeah, I'd be pretty angry if my village was burned down. I understand why someone would want to go out and do this. But then there has to be something else beyond that first material thing. And it's wonderful if in the course of going after this material goal, like with Mordai, they discover a grander desire and a grander ambition. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's something we go through in life. That's something, you know, we, we start off with. We start off fulfilling our, our essential needs. We move on to the kind of the self-fulfillment and we move on to the higher points in the hierarchy. Completely. It's interesting because it's also something, uh, if you have easy to perceive and material goal at the beginning, you can also find that, you can find that arc, that next goal through the table too. Um, you're kind yeah. of like leaving that open. Absolutely. Something that's so important, I think, with talking about the differences between tabletop RPGs and writing is your character, I don't think, should be fixed. You're, this is an improv storytelling. Your character should come in with at least a few blank pages um, and let yourself be influenced by the party and let yourself be influenced by the adventure. Exactly. It's been said a few times, but it, it's not you're the main character, but it's like you're all the main characters, everyone at the table. So reminding yourself of that, like you're telling a story where your party is the main character, and that's yeah. you know, leaving it open. You guys are like you're the heroes. Exactly. Or or anti-heroes, depending on the campaign. Or Or just straight up villains. If that's what you want to do a villain story. It sounds really fun. I could see as a DM, I feel like it would be very stressful. But I mean, I'm sure there's people who run it. I'm looking at running Vampire the Masquerade, which is just all villain stories. Mm -hmm. Because try as you might, you're vampires. (laughs) And the issue is, even if you're the most sort of anarch against the establishment vampires 
you're all going to stab each other in the back inevitably. Yeah. It's just in your nature. <laughs> so I think that's the problem with villain stories. There's no situate there's no ending where all of you make it out with everything you wanted yep yep that, uh, unless you end up forming like what are the evil justice league called oh oh crap i can't remember off the top of my head they've got like it's ultraman and and uh owl man and i cannot remember what the actual team is called anyway them unless you end up doing like this league of super evil uh but even then you know, you're all up to screw each other yep but i think i think villain campaigns could be fun i think again difficult to plan um, and I think that's why we love uh, stories like Suicide Squad, which is incredibly interesting. We get bad people being forced to do good things, yep. which is inherently funny. <laughs> and you also have the intrigue of like, okay, well, how are they going to get out of it? Yep. No, and it's and it's it's those stories are great too because they're the reminder that an evil person isn't just evil. Like, there's more to the character. Yeah. They are a person. <laughs> Nobody, it's, maybe I shouldn't even talk about villain campaigns, nobody is a villain in their own mind. Mm. And, and that's something I think is so important with, it's, it's very kind of basic advice with writing villains, but I see it in media all the time still. Um, nobody's a villain in their own mind. Everybody is the hero in their own story. Dresden Files, I think, put it best. No one ever wakes up and just chooses to become a maniacal overlord. <laughs> But just you, you take little steps and then one day you wake up and the, the line you crossed is a dot on the horizon. Yep. And that's why the Joker is not an interesting villain. <laughs> I mean, ooh, ooh okay, that's going to be your hot take in the episode. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll call up Mark Hamill and uh, we, can, we can have a conversation. <laughs> Please. <laughs> When it comes to role playing, one of the important parts, obviously, is our uh, one of the things that influences us outside of the other players at the table, but are our stats. Um, so I like mm. to know how people handle their stats. Um, do you let your stats influence your character? Do you uh, let your character influence your stats first? Uh, do you have a preferred stat system, um, i.e., like point uh, by standard array or rolling your dice? <laughs> The rhythm for this episode is going to continue to be, for me, it's always character first. <laughs> I come in with a concept and then I assign stats. And also, I don't like rolling for characters. I don't do it in Call of Cthulhu. Uh, you, you can do it in Vampire the Masquerade, but they're pretty keen on point by as well. And the reason I don't like it is because I would hate to be the person who comes in with, I want to be a face bard, I want to be the face of the party, I want to be charming and funny, and then you roll like a one for your charisma. And it's like, great. I just won't do that then. It's like, I just don't get to be the character I like. So I'm very big on point by. And you could argue, oh, it doesn't give you as much depth to your character or like the stats. Nah, I don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I want to do, the, as long as I can do the fun stuff that I want to do, then I'm fine. I have never, it, to my detriment, got out of my way to build like an efficient character. Just because D&D, I love you. You got too many numbers. <laughs> Uh, I can't always keep track. Like, I watch these videos about, like, crazy D&D combos. I'm like, I have no patience to solve, figure out this kind of, how to get 612 damage on my fireball or whatever. And it's, just, it's why I don't do mages. There's too many numbers. And why I don't like monks after 3.5. Um, so, yeah, so for me, it's a, dep obviously de very much depends on the character. I like to have charisma high because I like my character to be a talker. I visualize charisma differently than D&D &D writes it. Because mm -hmm. officially, I think charisma is 
how you it's meant to be like how outgoing you are i and like but i don't like that because it doesn't make sense for uh, a paladin who might have low charisma or a barbarian who might have low charisma to be to not be loud or boisterous or able to like assert themselves i hold what charisma means in a very limited way to me charisma is just how good are you at influencing people because you can have characters who are good-looking and funny and talkative, but if you and you can have people like this, but you stick them in like a negotiation situation, they break down. And you can have characters who are quiet and don't really get involved with people, but I think those characters should still have room to go into the situations where to get information, and they just steeple their fingers, and then five minutes later, the other person's crying and they've told them everything, <laughs> and it's just, you know. Kind of Hannibal Lecter-esque. It's just, um, so yeah, Charisma's always my sort of go-to. Dex, because I pick rogues a lot, has to, you know, has to be up there. It isn't always because I'm not good at the maths. Uh, I like con being quite low. I think low constitution can add to your character's story. My most recent tiefling had very low constitution. And I was like, okay, why is he so sick? Why is he weak? And I was like, great, okay, he was poisoned as a kid. Like, his, his family are wiped out. He survived a poisoning. It stunted his growth. Um, and he's kind of been driven by that. And he's like, well, my body doesn't work. I need to keep my mind sharp. And there you go. And so you, you, your character can inform your stats. And the, you, even if your character has an idea, you can then take these stats and kind of go, okay, well, what does low dex look like in a human being? <laughs> are they clumsy? What does low charisma look like? Are they shy? What does low strength look like? Are they kind of reedy? Um, you know, I think it's all good character inspo, but also, like, it, in my head, it's all suggestions. Do, as long as you're not cheating your roles, have your character kind of look however you want. You know, it's fantasy. You can you get, like, you know, skinny elves. You, you're able to sort of body slam people. I think it's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> rule of cool, baby. Rule of cool. I, I am a firm believer in, in the rule of cool. And, uh, and I do think... I do think pretty much any of the stats can be viewed in uh, their own way based on what type of character you're playing. Um, you know, charisma oftentimes is just like your presence of self and how much control you have over that, um, which is always very interesting to me because uh, I like I like playing face characters as well. I like being able to talk and um, but even if I have low charisma, I feel like I would still play that character. They just wouldn't be good at it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's just, they, they, they can think they're good at yeah. it, and they can really try, and believe me, those, believe me, there are plenty of people on Earth who really think they're funny, but they're not. And it's just, and yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's a, I think you, you have room to view, like I said, you have room to kind of view the stats however you'd like them to be viewed. In, in the end, it just comes down to how do they affect your dice rolls. Exactly. I'm going to skip over what's your favorite stat, as I believe you touched on it pretty, uh, but charisma sounds like the, uh, the favorite stat. <laughs> no, it's fun. You know, the stuff I love in D&D is the role play and is the social settings and is social conflict. It's why I'm so excited to do Vampire the Masquerade, which actually has, you can take damage from social conflict. You take damage to your willpower. If you get stomped in a debate, you are harmed by it. And I, I love that. Like, the example it gives is, you get absolutely stomped in this debate. You lose all your willpower. You just have a breakdown. You're just crying. And it's like, oh, that's so sad. 
Uh, so in D&D, that's the bit that always excites me. And charisma lets me go out and do that cool stuff. That, it makes complete sense. And it also makes sense why you'd want to be a mastermind rogue, very specifically because yeah. of the manipulation aspect. I'm very excited to look more into Mas- Vampire the Masquerade. Again, I've I've always been intrigued by it. But uh, when you're when you're letting me know that I can harm people by doing better in a debate, it just sounds amazing. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah it, it goes so far as being like, if, if you cleverly insult someone, that's superficial damage. If you reveal like a dark secret, that's aggravated damage. There are damage types. Oh, like I love it. Injury. I will say about not wanting to sort of drag away too much, Vampire Masquerade, I think the real reason a lot of people don't get into it is the lore is crazy and dense. In D&D, you can kind of open up the book and you're like, and people will correct me on this and I'm fine with that. I feel like in D&D, a lot of the lore is a suggestion. It's like, hey, here's the Sword Coast, here's the Forgotten Realms. If you want to play with it, you can. People are probably going to do their own thing with the world anyway, or people are just going to pick the stuff they like. You don't have that in Vampire the Masquerade because (laughs) there is so much language that is tied to the lore. And clans that are tied so deeply to the law and it's all about the relationships between people which is tied to like oh well the Nosferatu's uh, dark web got hacked by the second inquisition and now discovered kindred exist those words don't mean anything unless you've read the law (laughs) (laughs) so I think that's a real barrier of entry for that game and you know I've started to dig my head into it and god those are deep dark pools (laughs) with all tabletop RPGs with all RPGs for a lot of them, uh, even if the lore is just a suggestion, crunchy lore exists. It's out there, and if you like it, and uh, yeah. to know that there are, to remind people that there are games where it's like, hey, if you like crunchy lore, if you like really getting to know these things, there are systems where it's very important, and uh, you yeah. know that might be that might be the game for you. <laughs> no, that's that's my sort of plug is I, I love I'm not gonna be one of these people who comes out and goes I think D&D is overrated it's the most popular tabletop RPG in the world but I am the person who kind of goes hey if D&D doesn't do it everything for you or if there's parts of D&D that you don't like there are so many tabletop RPGs out there that do mad stuff that do really inventive stuff and you'll find something that's like, this is perfect, and this is perfect for me. And Cthulhu's done that because I love the atmosphere and the investigation and the, the tension and being able to build that tension. And Vampire's done that because it's like, wow, this is a really great setting to explore dark themes and give people room to explore darker aspects of their personality, which I find really interesting. You know, that rolls pretty nicely into the uh, the next question. This doesn't have to be about Mordai, but it can be. Uh, when you're making characters, do your characters tend to be like you or different from you? And either way, why do you then play them? It's such a wonderful question. It's one I've pondered a lot because I, I see... And in the end, the conclusion I've come to... Um, so you know Tintin yep. uh, from the Belgian comics? The, the, the writer of Tintin very openly kind of came out and said, he's just an idealized version of me. And I think, I think everyone does that with their characters. I think inevitably we build characters around traits that we um, admire and traits that we go even go so far as desire in ourselves. You know, I think it's we build characters who are strong, good-looking, charismatic. We build characters who are dedicated to a cause or are loyal to a fault, are you know out to destroy evil. 
I think in the end, they all come from quite deep places and they come from what are needs that I want to be fulfilled. What are some things that I feel like I can't fulfill in normal everyday life? What would my most exciting life look like? And it's just, well, you know, in real life, you know, real life is wonderful and I'm blessed to have it, but I don't get to slay dragons <laughs> and I don't get to solve mythos murders and I don't get to, like... Uh, throw vampires off buildings and that's good thing inevitably that is a good thing because in reality that would all be terrible to experience um but to be able to have that space to project these desires i think the characters i make i don't think they're like me because i know what i'm like but i do take parts of myself like um the advice i got for wrestling is you take who you are and you dial it up to 200 percent and I think you can do that with any character creation, especially with tabletop RPGs, where it's not enough to just write this character and be outside of them. You have to react and interact as that character. And I think you have to take parts of yourself or else you're starting from a blank slate. Um, and you get real questions. It's like, how do I role play a character who's smarter than I am? And that's <laughs> just, that, you know, that I think is an interesting question to kind of ask. Um, so I, that, my answer, well, that's my long-winded answer then is I, I, I build characters that have traits that I admire or traits that I see in myself, good and bad. But with admirable traits comes negative traits. If you find perfectionism and ambition to be admirable, there is a shadow to that. And that shadow is, okay, well, do they let other people fall to the wayside? Do they sort of not look at who they're hurting in the path of that ambition and boom you have conflict you have a character congratulations it's like you know you have a detective character who will, will get the case solved no matter what but they neglect themselves they neglect their sort of friends and there you go you have a character i, I love it i love it i like the balance i, I understand where you're coming from um that's that's fantastic a, a wonderful character, one of my favorite characters I've seen in anything recently, you have like, um, uh, I cannot remember this guy's name, it's the main character in The Politician on Netflix, have you seen it? Oh yes, I absolutely love yeah. The Politician. <laughs> Peyton is an amazing character, and Peyton is, is an amazing character because if he was born in the middle of rural Ohio, instead of to like a rich family in Washington, he would be telling people that the aliens were coming back. Like he would just be a maniac, he'd be running a cult. Um, and he is this wonderful depiction of here's what extreme ambition can look like, mm -hmm. good and bad. So Payton's a wonderful character and he, he kind of captures that aspect of you can have these admirable qualities, but everything has got a price. Yeah. You can't do everything. No, people, people like literally love to follow him, um, even at their mm -hmm. own fault, which is interesting. And I think... Yeah. Gwyneth Paltrow said it in the first season, but she like looked at him and she was like, your ambition terrifies me. And yeah, like, like I was so watching good. this show with someone. I was watching this show with someone for like the first time and I was kind of watching the film. I was like, I'm really enjoying this. And I was like, oh, he's a cult leader. <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what he is. Oh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, pull stuff that you would pull. You know, do not be afraid to give your characters things that you see in yourself. People worry about doing self-inserts. That's fine. You, inevitably, every character who makes parts of us, because we write what we know. We can only write from our own experiences. Before we jump into our, our kind of little wrap-up, um, I, I like to bring it back to Mordai a bit. Um, what about building this character in particular did you, did you enjoy the most? It was 
Mordor, I thought, was on the surface just a cool concept. He's a tiefling, kind of card shark and smooth talker. He's got the kind of the good look and the smile and the sort of, you know, devil may care attitude and the, the secret churning machine mind it constantly going on in the background and you know the whole sort of you can play up being friends but then he'd stab you in the back without thinking about it it's a cool concept but what really hooked me was taking this character taking him through these adventures interacting with other characters in this in this world and seeing almost outside of my control seeing this character soften and let people in. And the, the, the biggest way I can describe it is towards, in one of our last sessions before we had that hiatus, before we brought things back, I wasn't going to be there for the, there was a chance I wasn't going to be there for the actual last fight um, because I was going away. So in case I wasn't, I, Mordai wrote a letter and he wrote two letters. He wrote one if he died and he wrote one if he, if they survived. So he gave these letters to someone and I, I wrote these out in hand in my terrible handwriting <laughs> and gave them to someone to look after. We do the fight. Mordai essentially kind of appears before the party because he thinks this is the last time he's going to see them. And he just goes like, thank you. And just vanishes and he's gone because he's been given this kind of necklace that lets him teleport uh, away um, for plot convenience. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, and they unfold the letter, and the letter, it, I, I can't sort of do it verbatim, but it, it did just kind of say, thank you for everything you guys have given me. You've helped me grow to be so much more than I thought I could be. And it was being able to take this hard-edged, cynical, lonely character and have him develop into someone who genuinely wanted to help and formed these genuine non-transactional relationships with people in the party that was what sealed it it's not where you're it's not where you start it's where you finish that's wonderful and it's a such a great storytelling moment and i i also just like the uh preparing to not be there <laughs> um yeah it's a it's a it's a great um player trait honestly <laughs> All right. Uh, only got a couple more questions as we as we wrap up. Most importantly, uh, what well, what got you into RPGs and character building, like in the in the first place? Well, I've I've always really enjoyed kind of creative writing, and for me, characters are are the hook. You can have the most generic, dull story on the planet, but if you have good characters, that carries it. Um, you know, there are so many things where. The, the plots are so generic and the plots are so cookie cut, but because you have an interesting cast to run with, it becomes a pleasure to watch. So I'm always of the mind that characters have got to come first. People will forget the plot. You know, none of us sort of have real fond memories of, we can have fond memories of plot moments, but only because those characters were there and those characters reacted. So I just got the hook. I got the hook when we start playing 3.5 and it's like, these characters are really fun to build and it's, it's so fun to be able to explore this kind of rich fantasy world of these fantastical characters. <clears throat> and going into and having this wonderful experience of doing D&D &D with Addison and playing Mordai and sort of just the best d and I've played, um, that just locks it in. And then as I, uh, I, I kind of, so again, I had another big hiatus after that. Um, eventually, I kind of got sick of not having games to run. Uh, and I, I joined my local kind of RPG group and I played D&D &D with them and I was like, man, I've, I've missed this. And 
I got into running games. And my advice for anyone who's listening to this who feels like they don't know how to quite like break into the community, start running games. <laughs> there are way less game masters than there are players. And I thoroughly enjoy being a game master. I don't, and this is what I feel, this is a really rare thing for me where I found this thing and I enjoy it and I'm good at it. And a lot of my hobbies are very insular. A lot of my hobbies are very solitary. Like I do chess and I go to the gym and I play video games and I read. And those are very isolated on my own hobbies. RPGs are a, are a social thing. I can get my brother around, I can get my partner around, I can get you know friends around, I can meet new people and get to tell these stories and be unshamedly kind of geeky about it. Um, and people go, oh, but I love having a character. Well, guess what? If you love building characters, you're going to be a great games master because you can make, you can, even if you're like in Call of Cthulhu, you're running through the scenarios, you can take a character that's in there and say, like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put something in this. I'm going to give him a bit more of an edge. I'm going to give him a bit of shading. Um, and in, uh, and it just, great. If you love making characters, make all of them. Make as, as many rich characters, give them secrets, because that just adds stuff to the world. Uh, and the community has been wonderful to kind of get into. So it, it's really been quite early on this train for me. And so much has happened. Like, I'm running two games this month. Um, <laughs> I've, I'm running, like, I've done multiple games for my RPG group, when I'd never done this before. I'm going to be experimenting with a new RPG and Vampire. I've done two podcasts. I've gone from never being on a podcast to recording two of them in the space of like a couple of months, which is still crazy to me. <laughs> I'm looking at running one shots at my local board game cafe because they've said, hey, people are interested in doing Call of Cthulhu. And it's like, man, this is really exciting. I want to see where this goes. And so I'm on the, I'm on the train now and I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm enjoying the ride. I was gonna say it's real hard to get off. You're once you're once you're in, you're. It is. <laughs> yeah. It's so expensive. It's a sunk cost fallacy. <laughs> well, I mean, you pretty much uh, touched on um, the follow-up to that, which is the you know what do you love about D and D and what surprised you about D and D. I'll just kind of move forward into as we're in a tavern, as the the general concept is is the sharing a drink. Uh, I also like to toast to other characters, other people we've played with. What's someone else's character that you played with that uh, that you really just loved? I'd like to toast to one of my players, Call of Cthulhu characters. Uh, she's controlled by my partner, Lilia, who has never done a tabletop RPG before. She's always been so, so keen. She's always been so, so interested in doing it. <laughs> this was her first, but she's always had a really rich experience of creating characters. And she does that wonderful, wonderful thing of making terrible decisions for the sake of roleplay. Love it. And it's like, <laughs> yes, yes, especially in Call of Cthulhu. It's like, I'm just going to give you a spell book and I'm just going to walk away <laughs> and we're going to see what happens. Um, and she gets so into it and she gets so emotionally invested in her characters and she brings, uh, and like I'm talking to her about Vampire and she's really buzzed to be a part of Vampire. And it's like, she's one of these players who you just want to give all the tools and it's like I just want to see what you do uh, so I'd firmly like to toast to Ellie um, I haven't driven her insane or she's not died yet but our game's not over so we're going to see what happens well well, good luck uh, yes, and you can take that either way 
Luke, honestly, thank you so much for, for joining me here. And um, please send me uh, any and all handles, anything that you'd like to plug. I will, uh, I'll make sure to include it on all the episode notes. Um, and yeah, no, this, well, was, this no, is wonderful. It's been, it's, it's been a really cool pleasure. This has been, this has been a really unique Really, uh, really fun experience. Uh, I will send you, but it's at Arcane Keeper on Instagram. I post horror RPGs, indie stuff, just funky kind of things. Uh, updates from my kind of home games. I'm not into the podcast slash actual play sphere yet. It's on the list of things to eventually <laughs> look into when I have more time and money. But I'm pacing myself out but no it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me no of course and uh yeah please stay in touch anytime i've the best part about this podcast is meeting new people who like like these these role-playing games like i do and uh you know as i said to my first guest to uh who i met virtually uh i hope i hope we can uh, play a game together someday and um i would love yeah. that I, I would love that i'll show you how good horror can love be. it i i'm i'm in well, uh, well, thank you again, and uh, this was me. We met in a tavern. Uh, remember to uh, like and subscribe. Where we met in a tavern on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, it's pretty pretty simple to find us. Uh, but um, this is our seventh episode, and uh, cheers to more. So. <laughs>